0: Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the Hebrews. Before God, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Great God, beyond all words, help us to shape our words to do you justice. In you, there is no conflict between power and tenderness. The birth pangs of creation are the way of your wisdom Your love suffers crucifixion and is not defeated, restoring the world to life and hope. We do not deserve that hope which you have prepared for us. Measured by your ways, we get lost in the paths we choose. But you are ready to guide us and lead us onwards. overawed by the vastness of the universe, perplexed and battered by the events of our lives. We turn to you and find that you are waiting to meet us in the smallness of each day, eternity in each present moment. Great God, we worship you through Jesus Christ And your Spirit's gift. Amen.
1: We read first from Philippians chapter 2, from the beginning. Your life in Christ makes you strong, and His love comforts you. You have fellowship with the Spirit and you have kindness and compassion for one another. I urge you then to make me completely happy by having the same thoughts, sharing the same love, and being one in soul and mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble towards one another, Always considering others better than yourselves. And look out for one another's interests. Not just for your own. The attitude you should have. Is the one that Christ Jesus had. He always had the nature of God. But he did not think. That by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this. Of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. For this reason, God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name and so in honour of the name of Jesus all beings in heaven, on earth and in the world below will fall on their knees and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so then dear friends As you always obeyed me when I was with you, it is even more important that you obey me now while I am away from you. Keep on working with fear and trembling to complete your salvation, because God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his own purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be innocent and pure as God's perfect children who live in a world of corrupt and sinful people. You must shine among them like stars lighting up the sky as you offer them the message of life. And in John's Gospel, chapter 20 from verse 19 It was late that Sunday evening and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities Then Jesus came and stood among them Peace be with you he said After saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be among you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, They are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand in his side. I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here And look at my hands, then stretch out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Do you believe because you see me? How happy. Are those who believe without seeing me. In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book, but these have been written in order that you may believe.
0: So we're now quite a long way in our journey through Lent. Um, For those who are um, up on these things, today is, well, it's St. Patrick's Day, but it is also Passion Sunday. The day when we think about the fact that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem, when the die was cast and the events of the Passion were kind of inevitable now. And so today we're going to actually finish up our short series on mission because we will be moving in the next, next week to focus specifically on the Easter message and what that has to say to us. I think to call what I'm going to share today a sermon is actually a misnomer, it's more of a talk because it will lean far more heavily on the writings of David Bosch than it does on the scriptures that we have listened to. Nevertheless, these readings are important for us to keep in mind as we go off to look a little bit at some theological writing, because it is inevitably reflection on these passages and many others that has informed the thinking of David Bosch, and continues to shape my thinking, and continues to shape our thinking And so I'm going to reflect very briefly on the two passages before I move on to think about mission in many modes. A few years back, I read a series of reflections in the Baptist times about the passion and resurrection narratives from the Gospel of John. Um, I don't know if anybody else who remembers the Baptist times when it was a newspaper can recall a series that was entitled Not The. Not The Last Supper, not the Great Commission. So not the Last Supper focused on the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And not the Great Commission focused on this post-resurrection appearance that we read about in John 20. You see, the famous Great Commission of Matthew... Has a physically resurrected Jesus and his followers going up a mountain in plain sight of everybody, symbolically drawing closer to God, and physically able to look out on the world around them. It seems to be some time after the events of Easter Sunday. They've regrouped, they're confident enough to be seen together in public that is a very different picture from the one that John paints of terrified, bewildered disciples of whom at least one is missing who are huddling together behind locked doors because they're afraid of being arrested or executed. And it's in this context of terror, confusion, bewilderment that Jesus comes And gives his command. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Perhaps it's so obvious that we don't even think about it. But the mission that was begun by God in Christ, entering human experience as a helpless baby, who grew up to be a man, Jesus, continues without interruption in the lives of those who know him and love him. People who sometimes are so confused and bemused and battered and bewildered that they don't know which way is up. The mission that we are called to be part of is not something to put on hold until such time as we've got all those theological questions sorted out, until our faith is perfect, until all our preparations are complete, it begins now. In the brokenness, in the struggles, in the trials, in the uncertainty, in the questioning, and yes, in the doubting. Mission isn't an optional extra. It's the whole reason the church exists. Now, I can't speak for you, but actually, for me, that John story feels more close to my experience than that wonderful Matthew up the mountaintop hurrah thing. I'm scared of mucking up, of failing. I'm scared that we might fall out. I'm scared of getting out there. Because actually, isn't it safer and easier just to kind of huddle together inside and talk about stuff? And what about the Philippians 2 passage? If you've got a good memory, you'll remember that that is the pre- Passage that Ruth chose to preach on at my induction service three and a half years ago. And it's a passage I go back to from time to time as I reflect on our shared participation in ministry and mission. I trust that, you know, it wasn't just Ruth having a whim to pick that passage, that somehow through that passage, God was saying something important to us at that time the image of shining like stars in the sky with which the passage draws to its close is something we can read quite glibly. It's beautiful, isn't it? Lovely idea. But perhaps we miss the context because this brightness is explicitly linked to mission, to the sharing of the message of life that is the good news that inspires our faith and our life. but what's the source of the brightness? What is it that makes us and our faith so attractive that others are drawn towards it? According to Paul, it's our emulation of Jesus, or what Thomas Aquinas would have termed the imitation of Christ. Not a superficial copying of what Jesus did, but a transformed living that will outshine any other alternative. We should be the most attractive people, the most attractive community in this area. Central to this part of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is the psalm or hymn about the nature of Christ. Humble, obedient, sacrificial, crucified, and exalted. Whenever we think about mission, we have to do that in the light of all that God has shown us, has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us in Christ Jesus. We have to allow that to transform us so that the beauty and brightness, if not irresistible, is at least highly attractive to those who encounter it. Mission isn't easy, and yes, if you're like me, you feel anxious about it. It's much nicer just to barricade the doors and stay inside. But surely, surely we've got something that's really worth sharing, something precious, something bright and attractive that could transform other people if only we're brave enough to open the doors and step out. And so it's with that thought in mind that I want us to look at some of the work of David Bosch. This is where it moves more into talk fashion. And I have a handout, which I deliberately didn't give you before the service because you'd have all read it, because I know what people are like. So we'll just um, pass some of these out if we can. And please take these home with you afterwards and peruse them at your leisure. We haven't got the time this morning, and I'm sure most of us don't have the inclination to review 2,000 years of Christian mission, let alone to identify what's been good and gracious, or what has actually been embarrassing and downright awful. Inevitably, all historical accounts are biased, and those of Christian mission are no different. My guess is that most, if not all of us, will have stories of Christian mission that we love. Perhaps the story of William Carey, the one that Baptists are very passionate about, and as he came from where I come from, it's got to be a good story, isn't it? Or the story of David Livingstone, our own Scottish missionary, who went out to Africa and has inspired such projects as the one that Sheila is going to be taking part in. Or the story of Gladys Aylward, or Eric Little or whoever it is. But perhaps we haven't thought as much about mission as it's been understood or expressed in those days and as it is now. When I was reading again what David Bosch had to say, I thought I would start basically in the 20th century because that's roughly contemporary with the beginnings of our church. If we'd been talking about mission a century ago, we'd have been very aware of how diversely the word was used. David Bosch identifies eight or so interrelated uses of the word, ranging from a specific geographical area where missionaries went to work, who were sent by mission organisations... To a specific evangelistic mission, perhaps held in a mission hall. So you begin to see the word has lots and lots of meanings. There was never one simple, single way of saying this is the meaning of the word mission. But if we were to take a functional view of how mission would probably have been understood a century ago it would be possible to see that whether it was big or small, whether it was here in Glasgow or in Malawi or China, the purpose was very clearly about propagation of the Christian faith, conversion of the heathen, a term which was less pejorative then than it is nowadays, the founding of new churches and expanding the reign of God. I actually think that's probably the kind of thinking that would have inspired the people who came to part this church and then those who went from this church to Partick and Port Dundas. We have something worth sharing and we will share it. By the middle of the 20th century, the world had changed dramatically. Events of the two world wars had challenged the Enlightenment model of progress. Progress. Those who know about the Enlightenment Model of Progress will know that it means basically everything's getting better. Every new discovery is good, and humanity is on a course to, effectively, utopia. Hmm. Well, that doesn't stack up, does it, after World War II and other events since? Also, by the middle of the 20th century, Christian ecumenism was developing with the official formation of the World Council of Churches in 1948, and the beginnings of a more engaged interfaith dialogue. What can we learn with and from each other? By the middle of the 20th century then, the International Missionary Council had spent a lot of energy trying to think, what do we mean by Christian mission? And because it was that kind of think-tanky thing, they decided to use Greek words. So they came up with four specific elements. Kerygma, koinonia, diakonia, and marturia. Or you can say them in a kind of more Englishy, Scottishy way, if you like. And you could put those together in English as a single sentence to say that witness, marturia, is given by proclamation, uh, proclamation kerygma, Fellowship, koinonia, and service, diaconia. They also recognize that liturgia, liturgy, worship, was a helpful thing to hold in mind in that understanding. But we begin to see that the language is changing. It's much more about relationship than about function. Mission isn't just. What we do, but who we are and how we do it. The unique kernel of Christian belief is unaltered, it's essential and not negotiable, but its expression may be quite diverse and perhaps, uh, to use a trendy modern word, holistic. Now, it might be appealing to try and draw up a tight definition of mission. We might want to narrow the use of the word so that we can get something we can get hold of. But what David Bosch does is show us that trying to do that is like trying to nail jelly to the wall. Whether that's British jelly that's wibbly-wobbly stuff or American jelly that's jam, it's not going to happen. Rather than narrowing the scope Of mission and clarifying its expression. Mission in many modes becomes ever more diverse and complex. So much so that in his great big fat book, Bosch devotes nearly a half of it to trying to identify a contemporary mission paradigm. And he works with no less than 13 different expressions of that paradigm. So there is mission as evangelism, there is mission as liberation, mission as justice, mission as theology, mission as witness to people of other faiths, and mission as enculturation, just to pick a few of them. And every single one of those comes from a firm commitment to following Jesus And believing that amongst all the competing ideologies and worldviews of our time, this is the one that makes the most sense. This is the one that offers unique hope in a disordered and damaged world. It doesn't say you have to be evangelical, or you have to be liberal, or you have to be charismatic, or you have to be traditional. It says... All of these are part of how we express the mission of God, which is incredibly complicated, beautiful, and diverse. Those who've been to the theological reflection group and have begun to wrestle with aspects of doctrine have become increasingly aware of the inadequate and tentative ways in which we can express our faith. It's not that our faith is weak and wishy-washy or inadequate, but rather the more we become to get something of the Christian truth, the less useful the language and categories we have become. We realize that metaphor and simile, image and symbol are good and they have lots to offer us. But actually, they're never going to be good enough. There's always something just beyond that we haven't quite grasped. And I think that actually helps us in our understanding of God. But we can't tie God down into a box. We can't say this is it and no more. There's always something beyond. The word mystery can be used, well, a little bit glibly, I think, to say, oh, it's a mystery, I can't understand that. It's all a mystery. But actually, in its proper theological use, it directs us to say, that is mystery. That is beyond what I can understand. It's more amazing, more beautiful, more wonderful. I can get a little bit of the way, but there's still more to discover. And this is kind of what David Bosch does when he picks kit six key elements of a salvation story in the New Testament and let them become parables or metaphors or templates for thinking about mission. He's not saying these six stories are it and no more. He's saying let's look at the story of Jesus and let's pick these elements within it because this has to be our best guess. At what God intends mission to look like. It has to be through these stories that our thinking is shaped and informed. And of course, different Christian traditions in different geographical contexts at different times will have a different emphasis. It's not that one is better or one is worse. They are simply nuanced or contextualised. You work it out in your own place. So, for example, the incarnational model he speaks about, the one that's based on Jesus living as a man among us, is very much along the lines of the Jubilee understanding we thought about when we looked at Luke. And that, if we're honest, finds its clearest expression in Anglican and Roman Catholic traditions, and most especially in the liberation theologies of Latin America And South Africa. This week uh, we had a new Pope, didn't we? Pope Francis, who is a liberation theologian from South America, a man who chose to take the bus rather than the limousine, somebody whose understanding of Jesus' life has shaped his mission and his ministry. Or in the Western churches of all traditions, there is a very strong emphasis on the cross, which we would, be, would be found less in the Eastern and Orthodox positions. Whereas, of course, the charismatic church has put a greater stress on the events of Pentecost and the supernatural giftings that may come with that. But you can't just put them in boxes and say, they do that, and they do that, and they do that, we do this. Somehow it all holds together within the mission of God. And there's some stuff there that Bosch has put on, I've put on the sheets from Bosch, so it might help you think about that a bit more. If I can borrow a question from David Bosch: with mission, where do we go from here? What's the point of spending a few weeks thinking about mission? What are the factors that inspire us in our own commitment to mission? What is it that we are uniquely equipped and called to do and to be in this location at this time? A long time ago, well, it feels a long time ago to me, I was an ordinary church member and part of a church that claimed itself to be evangelical. And I spent an awful lot of time feeling very guilty because I wasn't doing evangelism. It just wasn't my way. Nobody said I should, but actually I got that if that church believed the mission of God was about evangelism, then we should jolly well get off our backsides and do it. When I read Bosch as a student, it was incredibly liberating because it gave me the permission to discern and test Just what expression of mission was the one that I was actually called to do? Not over and against evangelism or any other model, but in partnership with them to say, that's great, if your call is evangelism, you go and do that. My call is whatever it is. I wonder what it is about mission that resonates in your heart that resonates in your mind, that resonates in us as a community of disciples of Jesus. And I wonder how that gets lived out in our lives, both individually and, yes, collectively. How do we pull all that energy and enthusiasm and commitment to express our mission in this place and this time? How do we shine like stars so that we are incredibly attractive? Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Go now and spread my word.
2: We come with our prayers for others. Let us pray. God of love, we thank you for all those who carry on your unfinished task of showing care and love and compassion in this needy world. And we pray for all those in our society who minister to the needs of others. We think of those in our hospitals the caring professions, and the emergency services. Those who work in hospices, nursing homes, and places of care. Those and so many others upon whose skill, compassion, and dedication we depend in time of need. We think of caring organisations... Those like the Baptist Missionary Society, Christian Aid and Tear Fund, who work overseas. Those like Shelter, Children First and Age Concern, who work in our own country. And those like Glasgow City Mission and Elpis, who work in our own city A host of aid and relief agencies who bring hope to the poor, support to the sick, help to the homeless and comfort to the dying, working in different ways to support those facing times of crisis. We think of individual carers, those who offer their time and energy as volunteers Who look after elderly parents, children with disabilities or terminally ill loved ones at home. Who each day perform small but vital acts of kindness for friends and family, neighbour and stranger. Their acts unnoticed except by a few, yet so valuable to those they care for. We think finally of the family of the church, of those entrusted with full time pastoral responsibility, of chaplains in hospitals and hospices, industry and commerce, prisons and the armed forces, sport and education, of missionaries offering their skills abroad, and of individual believers seeking to express express their faith through caring words and deeds. In this week, when we celebrate the bicentenary of the birth of David Livingstone, we remember the country of Malawi where he worked. We thank you for missionary and Scottish government initiatives which seek to support those living and working under such difficult circumstances. God of love, we thank you for all who minister to the needs of others. Inspire us through their example, equip them in their continuing efforts, and enrich the lives of many through the service they offer. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: As our blessing upon each other and on the world today, I think we'll use the words of the grace, the words from the end of 2 Corinthians. If anybody's not sure of the words, it's in the back cover of the hymn book, and halfway down it says, benedictions, and the first one is the one we will be using. And as we do sometimes in my slightly weird way, we will say it first of all to one another, and then if we're able to turn around to face the walls, we will do, so that we can say it onto the city. So we say... Among, to us, and then we say to you when we talk to the world. So, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with us all, evermore. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all, evermore. 好